A reading from the book of Numbers, chapter 6, starting with verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron and his sons, This is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, starting with verse 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. The shepherds went in haste to Bethlehem and found Mary and Joseph and the infant lying in the manger. When they saw this, they made known the message that had been told them about this child. All who heard it were amazed by what had been told them by the shepherds. And Mary kept all these things, reflecting on them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, just as it had been told to them. When eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Well, today is a special day in the church calendar. If you've been walking with us for a while, you may have noticed that the church calendar takes us in seasons, in rhythms. There are broad seasons, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and Ordinary Time. There are then the principal feast days of the church, Easter, Ascension Day, the Day of Pentecost, Trinity Sunday, All Saints Day, Christmas Day, and the Epiphany. And then there are a variety of other feasts, some of which we observe, or nod to, some of which we don't. On Christmas Day, we transitioned from the season of Advent into the season of Christmas, a season of 12 days. This is where we get the phrase and the song, the 12 days of Christmas. We live into this season, resting in the reality of God with us. Well, as we live in these 12 days, there's actually a few feasts within these 12 days. <laughs> so there's a few of these feasts, these celebrations within this time. And whenever one of these feasts falls on a Sunday, it actually takes precedence over the normal readings for that week. So this year, Sunday falls on January 1st, which is the Feast of the Holy Name. Now, maybe you've never heard of this feast, and that's okay, because I've never preached on it before. <laughs> So what do we celebrate on this day? Simply, Jesus. Pretty simple, huh? <laughs> Specifically, though, we honor the name of Jesus. This is the eighth day after Christmas Day. 
And traditionally, eight days after a child's birth was when the law of Moses required that every male child be circumcised and also be named. We see earlier in our story that Mary and Joseph did not choose Jesus's name. It was given to them by divine command. Jesus is a Jewish name. The Son of God took on human flesh and also took on a human name. The name Jesus means the Lord is salvation or Savior or Deliverer in Hebrew. At the name of Jesus, there is freedom. And today we celebrate that name. I think many of us have experienced Christian traditions which have had some sort of meditation on the name of Jesus. I grew up in a charismatic church tradition and we would sit for long periods of time just chanting or singing the name Jesus. I remember the choir's repetition of the name Jesus, Jesus, Jesus over and over again. Or maybe you remember the song Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Well, this is actually common throughout all different traditions, and it's common throughout liturgical traditions and throughout history. Christians would simply sit repeating and meditating on the name of Jesus. This isn't superstition or incantation. It's the belief that somehow a name carries identity carries personhood. So in meditating on the name of Jesus, we are meditating on the person of Jesus himself. St. Bernard of Clairvaux writes, the sweet name of Jesus produces in us holy thoughts, fills the soul with noble sentiments, strengthens virtue, begets good works, and nourishes pure affections. All spiritual food leaves the soul dry if it contain not that penetrating oil, the name of Jesus. When you take your pen, write the name Jesus. If you write books, let the name of Jesus be contained in them, else they will possess no charm or attraction for me. You may speak or you may reply, but if the name of Jesus sounds not from your lips, you are without unction and without charm. Jesus to me, Clairvaux says, is honey in the mouth, light in the eyes, a flame in our heart. This name is the cure for all diseases of the soul. Are you troubled? Think but of Jesus. Speak but the name of Jesus. The clouds disperse and peace descends anew from heaven. Have you fallen into sin so that you fear death? Invoke the name of Jesus and you will soon feel life returning. No obduracy of the soul, no weakness, no coldness of heart can resist this holy name. There is no heart which will not soften and open in tears at this holy name. Are you surrounded by sorrow and danger? Invoke the name of Jesus and your fears will vanish. There is something about that name. We pick up the story today where the angels have announced to the shepherds the birth of the child. The shepherds represent in this story those on the margins of society. They're not city dwellers. They're not the insiders. They're not those who have cozied up to the powers that be. And when they receive the news, this good news, they're in awe. 
And the response is to go to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened. So they go and they find Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And then their response to this reality is to tell others. Not only are the shepherds filled with awe, but then they share the news with other people and those people are filled with awe. Why? Something new is happening. A new world is dawning in this good news. And then we're told that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it means she was just merely a meditative person who sat in the corner while everybody else was doing the actions. I don't think it just meant she was chill in the midst of chaos. The terms for treasured and pondered were standard words in Judaism for thinking about the events of one's own life in order to put them in the context of what God is doing in history. So Mary is interpreting the events. She's internalizing and then story weaving, <laughs> weaving the story of Jesus in the context of history. We're reminded that Luke himself at the beginning of his gospel says that he carefully investigated everything and decided to write an orderly account. It's likely, many scholars believe, that Luke's primary source was Mary. But Mary's pondering and treasuring continues even after this event. After 12-year-old Jesus tells her that he has to be about his father's business, she ponders, she treasures. Mary is a story weaver. She sees the drama unfolding between two kings, Caesar Augustus and Jesus of Nazareth. She meets the shepherds who had received the good news of great joy that will be for all people. And Luke gives us a picture of Mary as the one who is open, receptive, responding, and also preparing. Throughout his life, his mother Mary was one of Jesus's most loyal disciples. She had weaved the story understood God's faithfulness to her and to her people, seen what God was doing in Jesus and watched it all unfold. It says then that the shepherds return, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Everything has changed in this good news. The shepherds are moved to praise, Mary is moved to ponder, to weave the story, and those who hear the good news are amazed. Something new is happening here. Rescue has come. And then we're told that he is circumcised on the eighth day and given the name Jesus, the name which the angel had given him. Circumcision was a way of marking a person as belonging to the family of God into covenant relationship with God. It was commanded that all male children be circumcised, a sign of the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be God's people and he would be their God. Now, this doesn't mean that girls were not part of the covenant promise. The idea was that the boys, the men, were the representatives of the broader community. But with circumcision came a new identity. Every child born of this family was a child of the promise. God had been faithful and he will be so again. Jesus' name is intentional. On one hand, like I said, it was a common Jewish name. He likely grew up around a lot of other Jesuses. 
But it was also intentional for him because Jesus means the Lord is salvation. So Jesus is literally God's salvation, we see. Jesus' more full name would be something like Jesus ben Joseph. Why? Because he's the son of Joseph, a mark of his inheritance, the family to which he belongs. Jesus is born into a specific family, the house of Joseph. But scripture not only describes him as Jesus ben Joseph, but also Jesus ben David, son of David. He's part of a lineage, a family, a family and line of David, a particular house, a clan, a lineage. We also know that he is Jesus ben Adam. He is born into the family of humanity and carries humanity in himself. So that's all one thing, right? born into a family, born into a lineage, born into humanity. But also in Jesus, we see something quite radical. He is also Jesus ben Eloi, the son of God. He carries the inheritance and fullness of God in his person, son of man and son of God. When Jesus entered our world, he took on a human name, which shows that in solidarity, he took on the fullness of humanity and has transformed us. Paul says in Philippians that being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He took on our humanity. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He took our humanity and yet he has the name that is above every name. This is a way of saying that the divine name of God, Yahweh, is fully present in him. In fact, the first creed, the first Christian confession was simply Jesus Christ is Lord that this specific person with a human name is the one who is God. A theme which runs throughout scripture is the idea then of God sharing his name. This is what God does. He shares his personhood, his glory, his name. In our Old Testament reading, the Lord tells Moses to tell the priests to bless the Israelites in a specific way. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. So they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. In scripture, a person's name stands for their actual person. So God's name being on us or over us suggests God being on us or over us. St. Ephraim wrote this wonderful hymn, Merciful is the Lord who has put on our names, even to the point of humbling himself. And being depicted as a mustard seed, he has given to us his names. He has taken from us our names. His names have made us great. Our names have made him small. Blessed is the one who has spread your good name over his name, own name and adorned his own names with your name. The apostles, as well as the early church fathers, affirmed that when Christ died, we died with him. And when he rose, we rose with him. And as weird as it sounds, it's true of his circumcision as well. It's also true of his naming. 
In Christ, we are marked as a people of the promise. In Christ, we're given a new name, which is really a sharing in his name. Paul says, in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, but putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. The early church fathers and Paul himself believed that baptism was a kind of new circumcision, a way of marking one out as being part of God's family in Christ. In other words, in him, we are changed. We have been marked. We have been named. The heart of God is to share his name with us. We catch a rumor of this in our naming practices today. So we have several, uh, several ways in which today we share names. So when a couple is married, they often will share their last name, a way of signaling that something has changed. Something about them is different from what it was before. Likewise, when a child is born, they often share their parents' last name. The name has been shared. We often name our children after family members in order to create a special connection to share the name. Now, all of these things are limited, but they rumor God's desire to share his name with his family. When we are baptized, we are given a new identity, a new name. We are now Christian. You may have heard the archaic reference when somebody talks about their Christian name. What is your Christian name? And today we just, that refers to our first name, right? But it traditionally referred to the fact that a child was actually named at baptism. That's where they got their name. It is in traditional liturgies to give the child, if you actually go back to the Book of Common Prayer, the previous editions than the more recent ones that we have, it says, and what do you name this child? <laughs> It's like a way of giving the name at baptism to the child. They're named in Christ. My friend Bishop Dan Scott notes that the great psychologist Alfred Adler encouraged therapists to spend time asking their patients about how they felt about their own name. In drastic cases, patients might be encouraged to experiment with a new name, perhaps using a middle name, insisting that friends and family drop an old nickname or even getting a new legal name altogether. Adler believed that one's mental health was both revealed and affected by how one felt about his or her name. Naming matters. And as a Christian, you have been identified and named in Christ Jesus. You have a new name. In our epistle reading, the Apostle Paul tells the church something has been accomplished in Jesus, which brings us into the family of God. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. But this was written in the midst of a great controversy in the early church. It was really the first controversy in the church that there were some Jewish Christians who said that Gentiles needed to convert to Judaism in order to be part of the family and all the cultural attachments that came with that. Well, Paul said, no, you don't need to be culturally Jewish. Because of Jesus, others have been brought into the story. Paul's message is that because of Jesus, the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has come down and Jesus has adopted new children into the family. 
So why is Jesus given the name Jesus? He is given the name so that he might bestow the name upon us. It is for our salvation. He took on a human name that we might be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Because of Jesus, the father has adopted new children into his family. In fact, there's some thought that the early church called the Lord's Prayer, the Abba Prayer, or the Father, or the Daddy Prayer. This is really unique because in ancient paganism, when people prayed to, for, to other gods, they would make prayers and petitions to gods who were distant or vague, not well known. These gods were seen as changing their mind all the time. They were capricious and probably malevolent. For example, if there was a sailor going to sea, he would first, before he made the voyage, he would stop by Poseidon's temple, the god of the sea, and pray for a safe voyage. In the back of his mind, he would still fear that, okay, I'm making this sacrifice, but I hope I made it right, because there could be another sailor who had already bribed Poseidon for the wind to go in the opposite direction. Maybe my incantation was off. How do I get it right? Maybe the sacrifice was blemished, even though I tried really, really hard. I wonder if many of us American Christians often find ourselves in prayer, superstitiously throwing a prayer into the cosmos, hoping that something just sticks. Prayer often devolves for us into superstition. We see prayer maybe as a way of getting God's attention. Maybe we see prayer as something we do for our own individual enlightenment and experience rather than surrendering to the will of the God who has drawn close to us and invites us to call him Father. Yahweh is different from the pagan gods of the ancient world because Yahweh hears the cries of his family and he responds. As Christians, we are now part of the family of God. So when we pray, we're not hoping to change the will of a malevolent or vengeful God. Rather, we're approaching the God who is our father, who has heard our cry and responded in the past, the God who's been faithful when we are not, the God who has promised that one day all will be made right, and the God who has given us as a father a new name in Jesus Christ. All right, so what does all this mean? Well, because of Jesus as Christians, we have a new identity, a new name. This means that all the other names and identities that we carry have to, at best, take a back seat. But many of them just need to be gone, need to be obliterated. You are loved by God. You are adopted. You are a child of God. The other things you've believed about yourself or you've called yourself or the narratives you've told yourself, they're not true. You no longer carry the names shame, lost, broken, Never quite right, quirky, weird, ugly. Those names have no claim over you. You no longer are a slave to false identities. They're lies, they're fake news. They may still look like they define you, but they're a mirage. They're a remnant of an old world. In Christ, you live in a new world. This also means we have a new authority. We take our cues from someone else, someone other than ourselves and our own whims. This means we're part of a new family, the church. This also means that our lives have meaning and mission. 
we carry the name Christian. Your life is not random. Our lives are a blessing. I often tell the story of when my daughter Lucy was adopted. From the moment we heard about her, we knew she was part of our family. Yet for the first year after she was born, before the adoption was finalized, we carried around these papers that said temporary guardians. This felt so weird. We didn't feel like temporary guardians. We knew the truth. But there was something about when that judge slammed the gavel and decreed her as Lucy Rachel Sharp. We knew that something changed in that moment. Some of you may be following Jesus, but you've never been baptized. You're feeling the pull of God's love and grace. You know that you're being drawn in. You know God welcomes you into the family, but you've never stepped into the waters. We want you to know we'd be honored to baptize you. Maybe now is the time. Maybe now's the time to begin, to, as we begin a new year, to begin to think about that. May we know today the name that is above every name. May we know the power of the name which is light in the darkness, food for our hunger, and medicine for our sickness. Amen. Well, I mentioned before that our faith always calls us to mission, that this new identity is not just for personal fulfillment or individual satisfaction, but it transforms us. Our faith is always outward. It's always to be shared. We live in community with one another and are called into this family, the church, and then called as we're sent each week to go into the world. One of the ways that we are transformed and one of the ways we're changed and we share is through the giving of our tithes and offerings of becoming a people who are, um, who are focused on generosity and contentment. We live in a world that's really kind of turned against contentment. <laughs> we often want more and more and more. Uh, but generosity and contentment helps us to be thankful for what God has given us and then open-handed and willing to share that. So I want to invite you, uh, there's a few different ways that you can give. If you're giving a tithe and offering today, you could go to sacramentchurch.com, click the give link. You could set up a recurring donation there. That's always a really great way if Sacrament is your home church. One of the best ways you can help us is through setting up a recurring donation. You could also give a one-time gift there at that, at that portal as well. Or you could go to Venmo. Um, at Sacrament Church is our handle, and you can give via Venmo. Of course, you can always send a check to the church. That's another way that you can give as well. Uh, but we're invited into this life of participation in community and generosity. We're so glad that you can join with us today. Grace and peace.